All right. Welcome back. Once again, I am your host, Keenan Hart, President and Chief Innovation Officer of the It's Telehealth Podcast. I am joined by my trusty sidekick and amazing co-host, Andre Simmons. And Andre, today is an incredibly blessed day because we have the fortitude or the blessing of having an awesome guest with us. Um, this individual is the Systems Vice President of Pharmacy for Rochester Regional Health has been referred to as a renaissance man in the past, also went to the prestigious Purdue University, where he obtained his doctorate degree in pharmacy. And we are very blessed to have this individual um, who has been rising through the ranks of some very impressive health systems in the past. And today he is our guest, Dr. Will Carroll. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. I want to say really quick before we get started that only a renaissance man can pull that bow tie off at... Eight o'clock in the morning, which it's only it's eight o'clock here for us. Uh, on the, okay. On the west coast, and even earlier for Keenan. But you're five, 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 five a.m. here. Five a.m. here. Yep. You're in Hawaii. In Hawaii, actually moved here in December, and uh, couldn't miss the opportunity to uh, have you on our show. And so you know, it's early rising gets the uh, rewards, and so I figured it was a great opportunity for me to wake up early and put my best face on for us. Wow. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Dr. Carroll, once again, you know, we've talked about your awesome ability to be a focal point, not only in pharmacy, but also in your community. And I hope we can get into that a little bit. But why don't you give everybody who's listening to the show today a little bit of background about yourself? Where did you grow up? What, uh, what experiences do you have as a kid that led you to where you're at? Tell us a little bit about your history. Sure. So I, I grew up in Indiana, mostly. I was the youngest of five boys. And so that in itself teaches you survival skills like no other, right? <laughs> so there you go. whether that comes to food, whether that comes to just getting what you need in the home, right? And a lot of, a lot of fighting and wrestling and such. But it, I grew up kind of in a family that didn't have a whole lot. But I think the value in that, it taught me not to value a lot of things. But it taught me the importance of family and people. And I still kind of lead and I, I mentor with that, that kind of leadership style that people come first. You know, if we treat our people right, everything else will fall into place. So um, I think that's really helped me. And so growing up in that kind of environment did lead me at an early age to notice that my parents did grind pretty hard, taught me work ethic, but also made me feel like I wanted to, to get a career where I'd make enough money to take care of my parents. Okay. So in my head at that age, it was like I had to be a doctor, a doctor of something, right? And so I was going the medical school route. It's kind of where my brain was set until um, I, I did an internship with pharmacy. One of my guidance counselors back in high school said, hey, have you thought about pharmacy? And I was like, I don't want to work at CVS or Walgreens. And she was like, no, like the hospital. And so I didn't even realize they were there. So that's kind of where I did my first step. I remember the day after I graduated high school on June 13th is when I started my career in that hospital and I ended up being there for 13 years. Wow. So wow. It's a pretty phenomenal entry into the pharmacy realm, but really just growing up, um, really simple country guy, five boys playing in the dirt backyard, fishing, hunting, gardening. My dad had us working like Hebrew slaves um, like all <laughs> summer long. <laughs> He's from the South and that's just what we did. But it was an amazing childhood and I wouldn't trade it for the world. For sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, growing up, having as many siblings as you did, learning those early lessons about being a, something of a team player, you know, really contributes to being a good leader today. Um, you mentioned in high school, your guidance counselor mentioned being a pharmacist. Did you show any interest in that type of profession before? Or was that the seed that really got you interested in your really your direction that you've been able to pursue because my guidance counselors didn't have any types of suggestions like that for me when I was, you know, meeting with them. So that sounds very unique to me. I was blessed to go to a really good public high school. It was very large. Um, we had over 2000 students, six buildings on campus. It was pretty awesome. And so I was blessed to have a really good guidance counselor who, who saw the value in, in, in my specific skill sets or gifts and so she said, you're always getting your A's in maths and sciences, you know, history and stuff like that just wasn't my thing. So mm -hmm. maths and sciences, she said, you're excelling here. And I understand you're thinking about pre-med. This is what the yearbook says. <laughs> but have you thought about pharmacy? Because it's very chemistry heavy and you love chemistry. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what planted the seed of pharmacy. I completely did not. Only, only thing I knew about pharmacy at the time was Walgreens or something of that nature, the over-the-counter scripts. Mm-hmm. I felt like you just counted meds and you really didn't talk to people or interface. And and so I had limited experience or really knowledge at the time. So she's really what planted the seed of pharmacy for me. That's pretty wow. amazing for her to take that type of assessment of your skill set and then and be able to point you in a direction. And and I mean, she was very much on point. I mean, look look where you are now. It's great. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, I could go down on a whole soapbox on how the educational system has changed and our funding has changed. And so those guidance counselors don't exist anymore no. like that in the high school. Um, but they were so influential for, I know my graduating class, that like all of us got scholarships and there were 500 people in my class and we were just excelling um, academically because of that type of infrastructure and support that we had. Absolutely. Was it your friend group as well? You know, I often believe that the people who we associate ourselves with are the people who are the way in which we reflect the world, right? If that makes sense. So were your friends also driven? You talk about all of you guys were excelling. You guys were getting good grades. I know in Indiana, um, it's a certain lifestyle. I actually grew up outside Detroit. So I understand that Midwestern lifestyle a little bit more, but what was, uh, was it your friends that really kind of drove you there? Or was it that grind that you had from your parents and that example? Really, um, the grind is for my parents. The grind and the work ethic is, just, and I haven't dropped that now. I'm still trying to learn how to not work 14 hours a day. I'm still learning <laughs> how to press pause. But the grind came from really, I think, that childhood experience. But academically, it was just the standard. It was the norm. It wasn't an exception to get all A's. It was the standard to get all right. A's. And I think that was also the seed that was planted by my parents that we will not be a family of color that happens to be the exception when it comes to our students and how and our children and how they perform academically. No, we are the norm. And that's truly what I say when they say, oh, well, you're you're so different. Like, like you're you're you've excelled so quickly in your career. And I'm like, of course, we excel in our career. We excel in everything. We do. Like, that's the norm. Um, don't look at me as an exception. I think when you have when you adopt that mindset. And that mentality, and you then align your grind and your hustle with that, um, there's really no limit to what you can do. And you're not easily discouraged by someone who says something contrary to what you do. Absolutely. So I think my, my parents, my friends, I think it just all kind of worked itself together really well. Yeah, I absolutely love the fact that you just were able to give us a little bit of representation of what the mindset really takes and the fortitude takes to really be successful and to be transparent. You know, um, growing up in Indiana, being a black man, I'm sure that there was tons of adversity that you faced or at least examples of adversity that you faced as you were growing up, not just academically, but personally as well. Were some of those challenges that you faced kind of the foundation for how you look to include others in your leadership tactics and your strategies and how you have a vision for the future right now? You know, um, I would say when I was younger, I didn't even notice some of the discriminatory acts. But I did notice how my mom or my dad would respond when certain things took place. Mm -hmm. So I can remember distinctly in second grade where I was attending a school, a private school, and my parents came and took me out of that school during second semester. I was like, I like it here. They were like, no, no, this is not the place for you to be. And I was the only underrepresented minority in the whole school. And there was a certain way of, they always gave me a hard time. But for me, again, I'm thinking they're just trying to push me to do better. Right. In my young, naive mind. And my parents are like, there's, there's an imbalance here. And you'll, you, they didn't try to beat it into me though, that there was a certain dynamic happening. They let me still establish and grow and live in my world of, of, um, fairy tale, I guess you could say, until I became old enough to process and become aware of those things. And then they were there to entertain the conversations. So I think I really respect my parents for allowing me to mature at my my age, you know, at my rate. Well, what's interesting about that is that um, now, obviously, especially in the past few years, there's been a lot of attention addressed to um, 
microaggressions, if you will, in certain uh, venues. So like if you have, for example, my daughter went to a predominantly white private school here in Los Angeles. And um, recently, last, last year, uh, there were a lot of alumni that came out and spoke out against um, the, the, the same type of behaviors that you're speaking on that were, were like, they're, they're not really noticeable, but they're just kind of bubbling on, underneath the surface. Um, and, and I don't know, I, you know, I don't know when you graduated or when you were in this, at this private school, but there wasn't the same type of uh, outreach and the same type of um, exposure to those things at that time. So especially being in the Midwest, you probably, you know, you probably didn't quite understand what was happening at that time. So that's really interesting that that happened in that time for you. Yeah, it, it was really unique because in the Midwest, it was more, um, I would say, diverse from I would see more non-blacks around me. But my family's originally from Louisiana. That's where my mom and my dad were born, raised. All my brothers were born there. Um, I was the only one born in Indiana. So we would spend all of our summers and holidays in Louisiana, and it's very rural Louisiana, where you can still see the shacks and shanties that are decrepit in the fields, the plantation homes. And my parents got married in 68, the middle of the civil rights movement. Their first home was on property where my dad worked for the guy. Like, it's the, the row houses are still there. It's still so, whoa, like, and real and close to home. So going there, I could easily see the hierarchy with the blacks and whites. I could easily see it. But when I went home to Indiana, I was kind of like, it's not like this. So I'm glad we don't live like that. Not yeah. realizing that there was still a dynamic at play that mm -hmm. I just wasn't aware of. Sure. I kind of shifted. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's been an experience that many of us have had. I as well. My dad is black. My mom is white. Right. So I'm biracial, but I'm also light skinned. So I've seen both sides of that fence, mm -hmm. I guess you would say. And I also yeah. just like um, Andre, your daughter went to a primarily white private high school. And so I was always one of the few people who was not overly represented in my school. And so we share in that same type of experience. Um, but those type of things have really shaped me to be the person who I am today. And I think you could share in that exact same statement. Definitely. Oh, yeah. You asked me, did that play a role in me being mindful of how I lead today? I think that's kind of the question you asked leading into Absolutely. that second part. And it does. Um, but a big part of that was when I went to Purdue, one of my mentors, Jackie B. Jimerson, who's no longer with us, she was the leader of the multicultural programs at the School of Pharmacy. And she had two things. Number one, you always project excellence. And number two, you get more of us to the decision-making table. And so that has stuck in my head. Listen, I think she etched a sketch that thing in my brain so good <laughs> because <laughs> I always, every time I move up in a position, I recruit the most qualified and the best talent that fits the organization and my team. But I ensure that people that look all different shades, who represent all different generations and all different nationalities and the different genders are present at the table and Nine times out of 10, those who do not represent the majority, the older white hair male, are the ones who exceed in the interview process and typically hired onto my team. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very mindful and strategic around reaching out to underrepresented minorities, to females, to different ethnicities, to different age brackets when I'm recruiting for different positions. Because I, as I told our recruiters, even just last week, our chief diversity officer, we met last week here. And she's like, how are you finding these candidates? I have someone moving from Houston, Texas to be our new leader coming to upstate New York. Never left Texas before. She and her family are moving to New York. She's like, how did that happen? My new EA just moved here from Atlanta three weeks ago. Another black female. She's like, how is this happening? And I said, I'm intentionally reaching out to a wide variety of candidates on LinkedIn. And I get them to the table to make it aware that this is an opportunity because those of us who are talented, those of us who are skilled in what we do are typically compensated very well and pretty comfortable in the roles where we are. So we're not looking for another role. You've got to be active in recruiting me. And typically when I look at your organization, your board of directors, there's nobody that looks like me. There's none of your marketing that looks like me. So why would I even think to apply to your organization unless you come and talk to me? And there, it's, it's an interesting dynamic where 
it brings awareness that, uh, yeah, I'm not going to come running to you. If you want me, you got to come to me. Right. Yeah. Totally understandable. I mean, making those steps to be inclusive in your organization are really the planting of early seeds for the growth of the foundation of the organization in the future. And so I completely understand how bringing people that look like you that are talented into your environment, not only gives you diversity of thought, but gives you diversity of opportunity in the future. I mean, that's an absolutely amazing thing. And I love the fact that your mentor, Jackie B, was the one who really planted that seed in your mind. When you were spending your time at Purdue with her, was that one of the only experiences that you had, or was she very much able to foster those types of thoughts for your peers as well, who are now, I'm sure, in other places of healthcare as well? Yeah, she that was the whole mantra, multicultural programs. So we literally, even with her passing, if any of us does something, like I think that whole um, Renaissance Man interview was on Facebook, and <laughs> several of my colleagues were like, "Miss J would be so proud. Keep projecting excellence." You know, it's like yeah. they remember this, and we like pump each other up because those are the things that continue to resonate in our minds. And all of my friends are just rock stars. I'm telling you, like doing amazing things. I'm That's like, incredible. I gotta up my game because these people are doing <laughs> some incredible <laughs> things. <laughs> Those seeds that are planted, you know? That's right. I mean, it talks about that same thing I talked about. The people who we surround ourselves with give us the opportunity to rise together. I mean, what an amazing opportunity to be able to look to your peers, especially as you get a little bit more, um, I would say, seasoned in your career and look to see that people are also doing those things. And so it's amazing that you have that type of peer group. Um, Before we hop on to another subject, I got to ask the question. So are you, knowing that your family is from Louisiana as well, you went to Purdue. So does this mean that you are a big Drew Brees fan? (laughs) (laughs) Big Drew Brees? I mean, I'm a, I I don't know if I would call it a fan. I'm not opposed to Drew. You know, he represents the black and gold very well from the Purdue side and the Northern side. So there you go. Yes, this color is true. Black and gold. That's all. Yeah, exactly. Had to ask the question. Um, So as you, you know, finished up and got your doctorate degree from University of Purdue, which is absolutely amazing, um, tell us about your early career and some of the strategic decisions that you made to involve yourself in certain organizations. I know that you were at Kaiser Permanente for a little bit. And like you said, as you've been able to go through the different ranks of healthcare, you've been able to be inclusive. Tell us about, you know, some of the early stages of your career and some of the organizations that you worked for. Sure. As soon as I came out of residency, I went back to that same hospital that I interned with um, the day after I graduated high school. Mm -hmm. So I had been kind of interning with them the whole time. And then when I finished residency, I graduated, I went back as an infectious diseases specialist to work at the hospital. So I really started from the ground up at that hospital practice. The one thing is, if they have seen you grow up, sometimes it's hard to shift them from the mindset of you're still a kid. Yeah. Now this is Dr. Carroll. And so they would call me Doogie because they see me in my white coat and things like that, that really are a little condescending, but it's kind of teasing. And it's that fine balance of don't underscore, like, you know, or undermine my, my intelligence, you know, and any credibility there. But I think working through that taught me that I had to know my stuff and I had to represent it well. And then, but navigate and bring people along the journey of how do you treat and facilitate, you know, working with someone young and still in an authoritative position, right? Absolutely. So I I came there, I went back there right after and did a lot of work on growing the clinical pharmacy programs, advancing the patient care bringing us up to standards with best practices and regulatory and stuff. And I came to a decision point about three years into that role where I kind of felt like people didn't ask me questions anymore. It wasn't challenging. Where if I saw a provider when I first came, I would say, hey, Dr. Andre, you should do your patient I saw in ICU. Their dose was this, you know, or their disease is this, and this is a better therapy, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, who are you and why are you talking to me, right? Or why do you think this is better for my patients? I know my patients. By that third year, it was kind of like, hey, Dr. Andre, they were like, do whatever you want. Just go right in the chart. I'll come and sign. I'll see you later. Just leave a note or whatever. They literally just didn't even ask me why anymore. They would write notes, consult, will to treat pneumonia, consult, will to treat cellulitis. I'm like, 
that's not my job. That's your yeah. job. <laughs> but I got to that point where my girlfriend was doing neurology and she was in Huntsville. I was in Indiana and we were meeting up every other week somewhere in the world. And we got to that point of she, um, would she come to Indiana or would I be leaving the organization? And the organization, I went to the leadership and I told them, you know, I'm, I'm where I was in my decision. And they offered to create her a neurology position and make me the chief of infectious diseases for the health system. Wow. Exactly. And I went back to her and she's like, holy crap. Um, But let's ask the question in two years, will you be glad you did this or will you still be bored? I was like, I'll probably still be bored. She's like, I thought so too. So I don't want to move to Indiana if we're going to be moving again. (laughs) So so I ended up moving to Atlanta and joining Emory. So that's how I moved into my next position, bigger hospital, similar role, but a higher title. Right. So I kind of learned the people management, doing some collaboration with other organizations and health system at the time in Atlanta, which opened up doors that led me to comprehensive pharmacy services as a clinical director, consultant. That's how I met Dr. Finnefrock, who got me here, Marvin. So that's how I met him in that role. Continue to grow by doing key initiatives. I went to Puerto Rico to support 14 hospitals there for several months. Um, Wow. Infectious disease my background. Right. And I speak Spanish. So it just worked out really well. And I kind of worked with about 60 different organizations through consulting or directly working with them over those years. And I got kind of got tired of traveling every week. And so I wanted more of a nine to five and that's what led me to Kaiser. Um, So it's been slowly just in, in, in enlarging the scope, enlarging the responsibility, learning along the way and really learning me what I like and what brings me joy and, and, and excitement, you know, what I do. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that one thing I'm hearing you say is that you have had a incredible understanding of who you are from the very beginning. And you've been able to surround yourself with people, even your girlfriend at the time who have been able to push you in the right direction. Because if, you know, most of us out there, if we have a solid position in a good organization and we're looking to our future, a lot of people aren't willing to put themselves in that uncomfortable situation to be able to accomplish the next step. And the fact that your girlfriend asks you the question, will you be happy in two years, really talks about your mindset for the future opposed to the right now, which is amazing. And so I'm sure that that's been one of your major attributes that you bring to organizations is your vision for the future as well. So that is just incredibly impressive. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who are listening today that might be in the situation where they're thinking about the right now, but that vision for the future gives you the opportunity to put those chess pieces together, right? Um, And strategically, I think you've been very brilliant in doing that. I mean, the fact that you even went to Puerto Rico, speak Spanish, work with 14 hospitals. What was that experience like going down there and spending some time there? I loved it. Listen, yeah. I loved it. I would go back in the RV. Oh, <laughs> I, I actually still go two or three times a year just to see my friends and old colleagues there. Um, I think the great thing about it is you don't realize, even though they're part of the United States, they're still some challenges there, and they're not necessarily as advanced in several areas. Sometimes the infrastructure is just not good in some of the hospitals. They need to build new infrastructure. And the drug therapies that are available here aren't necessarily the same there. Also, there are some cultural nuances where there's maybe a little bit of machismo where some of like the male-dominated type of situation where most of the physicians are male and a lot of my pharmacists are female. So if my female pharmacists try to say something, the males are kind of like, why are you talking to me? I'm going to do what I want to do. So I would go in and say, you know what, Keenan, like, I'm, you're so lucky to have Nancy here because Nancy told me about this patient, you know, and this is what I would do with this patient. And you didn't have to ask me because she knows and she's right here for you to talk to. So I'd be empowering, like, talk to your females. Like, they know this stuff. They run your house at home, don't they? Let them run it here at the uh, hospital too, right? They know what they're doing. And I think that was so rewarding to empower my clinical staff there, remind them that of how awesome they are, how much they know, because people will, if people constantly question everything you do or somehow tell you that you're wrong, you can sometimes kind of question 
what you know, right? Right. But sure. reinforcing that you got this, regardless of somebody else questions it. You know, advocate for patient care. That's what you are here to do. Advocate for patient care. Remove emotion and tell them it's not about you. It's about the patient. So when you're ready to talk about the patient, come talk to me. And when you shift that, you shift the dynamic and you're really able to impact the patients, which is why we're here in the, in the first place, right? Absolutely. So that was a really rewarding experience in Puerto Rico to see the evolution of our practice of pharmacy, even the provider groups and how our relationships are strengthened. Along that point, you've worked with uh, several health organizations. Um, and what is your like initial approach uh, when you're going in to align with what you do with what they already have in place with their strategy? That's good. That's good. Typically what I do is my first six months, I try not to change anything unless it's like grossly like offensive. Is this a safety issue or regulatory issue? Otherwise, you know, it may be my preference. So I just kind of hear it out. I listen, I learn, and I answer questions as they come around. If there's low hanging fruit, we address it, but no major changes in the beginning, right? That's typically what I do. Now, as a consultant, I'm brought in to do change and do it quickly. So mm-hmm. I have the ability to do that, and I have the mindset. So I'm constantly making lists in my head of all the opportunities we have. But I try not to take action. My first focus is the people, building rapport, credibility, relationships. Um, in addition, I try to share when I have the opportunity that, hey, yeah, I, I do know something about this, so I did this before to help build that so they know they can come to me with those concerns. So I do that from the people team management perspective. From the executive perspective, I try to tap into asking, what is our strat plan? What are our strategic pillars? What are our guiding principles? I need to see that. I want to take it and I want to create one specific for my pharmacy service line based on yours. As soon as I came to Rochester Regional Health. Then I work with my leaders and say, these are our guiding pillars. What do they mean to you? Let's populate this thing. How do we create it for our org and kind of lead them through the process so we remain aligned with the health system, but we start to create our own identity as well. So that's kind of the way I facilitate the change of bringing my local leaders to a higher level of strategic thinking, less doing, more thinking, less how, more what. (laughs) So we start focusing those conversations while we just build some relationships. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. What I hear you saying is that there is always an intent to how you're spending your time, how you're spending your energy, how you're spending your valuable resources in your organization to accomplish a goal. And I think sometimes people get confused with the doing as making progress. So that's a very unique statement that you made in doing less, but thinking more. Do you think that that has been a unique perspective of you? Because I don't hear a lot of leaders really bring that perspective to the table in which you did. How did you develop that calm, cool, collected mindset to be able to rally the troops around you? Well, I I find that, I don't know, I don't know where it came from, but something clicked in my head a long time ago with strategic thinking. I'll do this with other executives because it, we hijacked our ability to be innovative and creative and visionary because we're too focused on limiting ourselves based upon what we see as our available resources or how we can execute, right? If I ask you, do you want breakfast or what do you want for breakfast? People start thinking, well, I only have a microwave. Well, I only have a stove, so I don't have pancake mix. So maybe I'll just have, I don't have any milk. I can't have cereal. I'm like, I didn't ask you that. Stop. I ask you, what do you want? <laughs> That's all I ask you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we as leaders, there's different levels of leaders, but we as leaders have to be strategic and visionary thinkers to really define the what. And if we're very clear at the what, we have teams who determine the how. Mm. We build walls and tell them to operate in the walls. I don't care what they do in the walls. Tell them you want nine. If they do two plus seven and you want a six plus three, that's a preference and it's not important. So hush and let them do whatever it takes to get that nine. Let them operate in the walls and be creative and grow as leaders, right? Yeah. Incredibly. No, that, <laughs> but, I, no I, love, I love that. I love that. That's, uh, no, I get passionate because sometimes we, we, we squash the creativity and innovation of our own team members because we're like, well, I asked for nine. And so, you know, that's one plus eight. They were like, but I said two plus seven, but it's one plus eight. It's, it's really not. I mean, so I, I think if we 
can take away a little of that control and really focus really on defining clearly what the what is, let them determine the how. I think that kind of aligns with a, a conversation that we have a lot of, about um, results versus process. I think sometimes we get so results driven that um, we lose sight of, of, of the steps it takes to get um, something that's going to last, that's going to last long term. I completely agree. And I think that's where you get to the different types of leadership, right? So there's probably like 10 most common types of leadership. But I think that there's the servant side, right, of supporting your team through that and teaching them and leading them. There's the visionary leadership that's showing them where you're trying to go. And then there's the transformative um, or transformational leadership that's taking them on the journey of how you transform from current state to the visionary point, right? But it's not the dictatorship type of kind, you know, type of leadership where yeah. it's just one defined way of doing things. So, yeah. Do you think that that uh, this is might be a little bit of a, a deeper question, but because you came from a family of your size, I'm sure that you couldn't mandate Will's way when you were a kid. And so collaborating <laughs> right with your family, with your with, with your siblings, I'm sure was some of the early lessons that you learned. Right. Rally the troops around you, persuade people to get to the vision. Don't tell people how to do all the things along the way. Keenan's good. Keenan's good. <laughs> Did you study like therapy or something? Because <laughs> you're really good. Uh, you're right. They would beat me up. Otherwise, <laughs> had to be like learn how to be nuanced and slick, basically about how you got things done. So yeah, absolutely. That's Focus awesome. On the Focus also, on the also, the ability to make the most out of the resources you have too. Good. Yeah. You have a family that size, right? Yes. So a couple of things that you mentioned, I've heard you say, <clears throat> you talk about the patient experience, right? And the one thing that we've learned, or I've really soaked in from Dr. Finnefrock and her talking about his history and his time that he spent at USC, for example, in the School of Pharmacy there, he talked about, we were very centric and focused on the patient, right? I mean, the role as a pharmacist, I don't think a lot of people really understand the true value in the trusted counsel and the trusted advisor relationship that you have with your patient, right? There's a lot of confusion sometimes around medication, medication management. And so has that been a very early focus for you and how you've tried to approach the patient relationship? Yeah. And I think my residency really helped with that. First of all, Purdue really helped instill that. And they didn't limit you into thinking your job is just to get drugs in the patient's hand. It's more about ensuring safe and effective use of medications. And there's a full spectrum that you have to cover. There's also many um, patient care environments. You have the hospital, the ambulatory clinic, you have home, you know, you have all the long-term care sites, all of that space, all of which I oversee now in our organization. And my responsibility is to ensure that we get the right patient to the right medication, the right medication, the right patient at the right time, and that we get the desired safe and effective outcomes that we're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. So I think having that patient-centered care management team, patient care team, is critical. And pharmacists need to be part of that team. I always say we're the drug information experts. So I know in my residency, I would say, you diagnose, and I'll tell you how to treat it. Mm -hmm. And then during that residency, I learned the diagnosis and the medical residents learned treatment. Right. So that's how we traded off because in school, they only taught us one side of the coin. That's why residency is so important. But everybody brings value to the table to ensure that. And many people think of pharmacists just as the Walgreens side. Right. But even those Walgreens pharmacists, you know, are PharmDs, doctor of pharmacies, and they, they know the clinical stuff too. They just may not exercise it to the same extent as some of those who are in the inpatient side. Absolutely. I totally understand that. And so that kind of gives me the opportunity to segue into the next portion of our conversation, recognizing the last year and a half, year and eight months that we've all been through with COVID. What were some of the challenges that you faced in your organization as people started making the abrupt shift in how we practiced, the way in which patients were able to access trusted resources in the hospital, but also in the pharmacy? What were some of the things that you saw as your main challenges as uh, COVID kind of inserted itself into our lives? 
Mm-hmm. Well, and when it first hit the first time, I was still at Kaiser Permanente. I was a national vice president over the 40-something hospitals, all the oncology, ambulatory infusion, home infusion. So mm-hmm. and we had 12 million patients to take care of. So if you think about it from that perspective, we were focused on how do we increase hospital capacity, bed mm-hmm. surge, how do we put tents out, put the ED in the tent, turn the ED into an ICU. How do we get enough medications to take care of these patients? You know, most of them are going to end up on ventilators, which require specific medications. So we need to order up, stockpile, and be very strategic on how we do that in a very quick, short amount of time. So we did a lot of learning on the patient management. And then on the people side, we need to hire a ton more nurses, a ton more providers, a ton more pharmacists, as many as we can, but also focus on their health, their resiliency, you know, and giving them breaks. So there was a lot of learning, steep learning curve in the first round. Whereas this side coming into when it hit the second time I was here in New York, mm-hmm. we had already learned how to do the hospital surge, drug therapy. We got that. It was the COVID-19 vaccine that came in and threw a wrench and everything this time. Yeah. And we had to be prepared on how to do all of that, which was very pharmacy centric. So our pharmacists had to order the, the vaccine from the state, we had to store it, we had to redistribute it, we had to track every dose that was wasted, every dose administered, and report that in on a daily basis to the state. So pharmacy played not only a big role in the vaccine management and staffing the COVID clinics throughout the community and for the employees in the hospitals, preparing the doses, we did all of that. But in addition, our hospitals are busting at the seams and pharmacists are on the floor dispensing medications. We are in the main pharmacy compounding everything. And many of these people are working double shifts and working extra shifts to take care of these patients. So it it was a lot. It was a lot for pharmacy to really have to focus on hospitals are busy. So I'm pulling people from the retail side, outpatient, to work in hospitals and to work the clinics. But really just how do we come together as a team and leverage those resources to fit all the needs? And it was a big lift, but my team did a fantastic job. When you have um, the in-hospital pharmacy uh, setting, um, you have access to the physician as well as the patient. Um, Can you speak to how that that impacts that process in terms of taking patient from, you know, from intake to uh, release? Yeah. So pharmacists can play, pharmacy plays a big role, especially if we can do part of the medication history up front, asking you what medications were you taking and parting with the provider. So we meet together and say they were taking these five drugs, you know, which ones do you want to continue and how should we adjust them and such, right? Then each day while they're there, the pharmacists, physicians are rounding on the patients, adjusting therapy. Pharmacists are monitoring and many times managing certain drug therapies. We'll adjust based on your renal function, your liver function. If you're responding, we'll adjust your therapies based on different protocols that we've established. And then as you prepare for discharge, we're working with the outpatient side to say, what are we gonna be sending them home on? Is it covered by their insurance? What's their copay on it? Like, is there prior authorization? How do we get everything in order to make sure we have a streamlined discharge and ensure they don't return based on the fact that they didn't get their medications filled or any other medication-related issues. So the great part of being right there in the hospital with the provider is you can talk to them face-to-face and said, hey, patients and they got paid. You know, and I saw you didn't adjust it. I left you a note in the chart. Can we adjust this? And you do it in real time versus outside and retail. You got to call somebody away from the call you back. And yeah. stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah, the thing that I understand about the discharge process, and like you just very eloquently put it, there's a lot of different components that really get into the fact of providing a legitimate, supportive circle around a patient as they leave the hospital. That counseling session before they leave, the medical or medication reconciliation, understanding what's going on with the patient. Um, what are some of the challenges that you see in the medication reconciliation world? Is it sometimes difficult to get the patients to convey how many different medications they're on? And how do you overcome some of the challenges in them saying, well, I've got these pills at home. I don't really know the name because it's this long. Um, I take this. I shouldn't take this. What are some of the challenges you face in that area? Those are those are exact challenges. They'll say, I take the blue one for blood pressure. I take the red one for diabetes. And so um, sometimes the challenge is 
you don't get the information very well from the patient. Mm-hmm. Also, it can be that you can't necessarily contact the pharmacy that they said they went to. So that's one of the challenges is the technology that's not necessarily integrated well enough or designed well enough. We're getting there in some areas, but so that we know with all your outpatient retail pharmacy scripts that were filled, we want them to flow in. We've got this in place at certain sites where you can look and see what was filled, what prescription was filled and when. And you can go to the patient and say, I see, I see you got this filled at Walgreens. And you can have that type of conversation. What did we miss? What's not accurate? When did you last take them? So some of the challenges really is around the technology, accessing the information. And the fact is the patients are sometimes just, they're sick. They can't tell you some things. They're not mm-hmm. comfortable. So how do you leverage technology and automate some processes um, to make them a little less dependent upon people? Absolutely. Uh, because we were we were speaking about when you know the pandemic and COVID, and um, and you and you spoke to the the vaccine when the vaccine came into play. Um, how difficult was it to get people to, for instance, to come back for it because it's a two shot process, aside from Johnson and Johnson, for them to come to go back and get that second shot? Yeah, when we first started, we only had the you know the state had specific groups that you could issue it to the CDC, like so high-risk healthcare workers were first, right? And then eventually we got the teachers and such, but most of it was just around the healthcare and people directly interfacing with high-risk populations. So those were a little easier to contain because what we learned was we designed our health or medical record so that when you receive the first dose, we knew if it was Moderna or Pfizer, we have it in the system, and we would automatically schedule one for four weeks later or for three weeks later and give you an appointment card at that time. Mm-hmm. So everybody didn't always show up right. for that second or third note, yeah. but at least we tried to establish some processes for that. On the community side, was much harder. Um, if you came through our drive-throughs, we did the exact same process, and many people did just show back up. But at some point, we just had to start posting availability online, and people can plug in when they want to come and get an appointment, and they just show up. Because um, it's too hard to micromanage when you start getting to tens of thousands of pa- patients. It's just challenging. Absolutely. You know, I also heard you, excuse me, I also heard you talk about, um, you know, the technology that you guys are using is incredibly important in helping you manage all of the different elements and staying connected with patients. You know, us being a telehealth company, we recognize that there's an appropriate place for technology in healthcare. Do you guys currently utilize any piece of telehealth or any elements of telehealth in your pharmacy delivery processes? And the pharmacy delivery processes, I would say um, it is not as robust here in Rochester Regional Health. But coming mm-hmm. from Kaiser Permanente, absolutely. At 1,500 pharmacists in the ambulatory care space across the U.S., we would do patient drug therapy management, sometimes using the iPads. Yep. You give them digital scales with Bluetooth capabilities to upload their weight and stuff. And so leveraging that technology, especially when COVID hit and you couldn't interface with the patients, you didn't want them coming on site. We rolled that out immediately to be able to still provide their clinic checkups and all of that kind of work through the medication therapy management programs that were in place in the AMP care space. Here we have, I just have two pharmacists that are really embedded in the heart failure and the diabetes management space. And I have some other pharmacists in my outpatient space that are doing specific initiatives to target certain patient populations. So those individuals have leveraged telephonic communications, Skype, and things of that nature. Um, But I think there's still a ton of opportunity, especially in our health system. Absolutely. I mean, we recognize that one of the misconceptions or one of the ideas that was in the marketplace was COVID occurred, telemedicine popped up, right? We've been in the space since 2014. So we've recognized what the future could look like. COVID really accelerated that. A lot of institutions and a lot of, you know, different individuals think that when COVID disappears, also, telemedicine will start to fizzle. Have you looked at the future? And what does the future mean for healthcare involving technology like telehealth? Do you have an idea of what the future should look like? Well, I have my opinions, right? So I, I agree. I don't think that telehealth will go away. I think if anything, it's kind of like the whole remote working. 
everybody's not coming back to the office because you found that they can still be productive. They can still reproduce the desired outcomes without a commute time. Patient better satisfaction too, why they come back. Same thing with the, the telehealth side. If you can still get the interfacing, you can increase compliance or adherence. You could also manage the therapy appropriate, potentially see better outcomes that are not any worse ones worsen. Why would you change that model? Only Absolutely. if you're affecting the biggest thing I have to say is the reimbursement side. You just got to make sure the payer groups and reimbursement align with it so I can continue my rev cycle management. As long as I'm still recouping that, I don't see why we would shift back. Absolutely. I mean, it makes sense to me as well. When we're trying to help individuals self-manage chronic, chronic conditions when they leave the hospital system, staying intact or staying connected with the patient throughout their care journey outside the four walls of the facility sometimes is difficult when we leverage things like telephonic communication, because we know a lot of people today might see the phone number of the hospital calling. And then they're like, oh no, did I not pay my bill? Right, there's a misconception there. And so being able to stay connected with that patient um, really can have a huge ROI when it comes to reimbursement, but also um, to readmissions as well. And that's one of the things that I look at in the future as being, if I have a trusted means of communication with a trusted resource, like my pharmacist, a trusted advisor, then being able to communicate will help me better understand my condition and how I can self-manage. And that's kind of my vision for how the future looks with telehealth, especially when it comes to pharmacy. Yeah, I think what you said was key as far as self-management. I think it's helping, empowering the patients to take a more active role in managing their, their care and their therapy, right? Um, I just had this conversation earlier around how do we get the right tools? It's a balance, but how do we get the right tools in the patient's hands to help them play a more active role in managing the therapy, right? A little less um, father-child type of relationship, but more of a collaborative effort. Um, Absolutely. I think we will see better outcomes that way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, my hat goes off to you. My hat goes off to all of the other leadership in our healthcare systems that have been fighting alongside all of our nurses who are on the front lines and everyone who's there, you know, because I think one of the things I mentioned in a previous episode that I really loved was when the pandemic took hold of the country, we started referring to those individuals who worked in hospitals as heroes because they really are sacrificing so much. And you said this very early, right? You've got pharmacists, you've got retail pharmacists who are coming in, they're working doubles. You know, being on the front lines is um, incredibly hard work. How did you stay refreshed through the process? How were you able to keep your spirit alive? Were you participating in other interests? What other type of things drive you and give you that, um, I guess, inspiration to keep showing up as your best self every day? Yeah, for me, I, I'm big into the outdoors. It's important for me to disconnect with without the noise. So fishing, hiking, gardening, manual labor, my dad, some of my dad did, right? <laughs> that I have to get out and just get active and sweat. So me exercising and me doing that type of something outdoors really helps for me. In addition, um, COVID, I lost my father during COVID. So oh, I'm it, so sorry. I appreciate sorry. it. It helped me realize and helps you shift the focus and listen, like there, there's some important people in your life and spend time with those people. And so for me, it's not only about the self-help uh, help of taking care of myself physically, but also the mental side of connecting with those that you love, you know, not having regrets and just ensuring that you maintain it and take advantage of the time you have together. So not just your family, but mentorship. I mentor different students and, and folks and guiding people through the process helps you reset, realize how blessed you are and help you to continue to push through. So for me, those are the big things. I still run my own business on the side, real estate. Um, I have a real estate portfolio. I'm not a real estate agent, clear. Mm -hmm. um, but doing some of that work does get a little laborious. I'm a musician and such, but it's a good activation of a different part of my brain um, aside from healthcare. Sure. So, yeah. I mean, by by definition, everything that you just described, right, real estate portfolio, mentorship, a musician, doing all the things that you do on the front lines, helping reform organizations. I think that's the definition of a renaissance man. And I think it, <laughs> I think I it fits know. very well. I love it. 
I'll have to research that. It was funny when I heard it in the interview. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Well, you know, Dr. Carroll, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today, bringing your sense of poise, talking about being intentional and exuding excellence are all things I think you do incredibly well. And it has been an absolute blessing for us to have you on the show today. Um, We very much appreciate it. One last thing that I ask of you is you talk about mentoring your individual students, right? If you had to give one piece of advice for the younger generation who is coming up through the ranks right now, what would you give to them? I would tell them to, to not focus so much on the destination that you don't enjoy the journey. So I would say, enjoy the journey, the ups and downs, that is what prepares you for the destination. And for me, you really don't actually reach a destination, you just keep climbing. But for those who have that, the next goal or step in mind, don't get so focused on trying to get there that you miss living life and enjoying everything around you. So enjoy the journey, still stay visionary, focused on your goal, but enjoy the journey. Yeah. That's it. That's perfect, man. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate it. Once again, this has been great. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much. Andre, once again, thanks for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure in having you. Once again, this has been the It's Telehealth podcast. Once again, we've had a great guest today, Dr. Will Carroll. Hope you guys tune in. And if you're still listening, really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the It's Telehealth podcast. Stay current by subscribing to It's Telehealth on your favorite podcast platform. 